Inside Sources. Inside Sources. America's voice of reason. Boyd Matheson on Utah's home for elevated conversation. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. Just a few hours ago, Nikki Haley gave a major speech on the state of her presidential campaign. For many in the media, the question was, is this the beginning of the end? And our question is, is it the beginning of the end or just the end of the beginning? Let's begin. Think you know the news of the day? Think again with Boyd Matheson on KSL News Radio. Well, as we continue to march our way forward in the presidential race, uh, Nikki Haley is the last one standing against former President Donald Trump on the Republican side of the aisle. Well, of course, President uh, Biden continues uh, to dominate and really be the only choice on the Democratic side. Uh, Nikki Haley today announced that she was giving a major speech. She did that just a couple of hours ago. And as everyone gathered, there was a, a lot of chatter uh, from the chattering class about what this would actually mean. Would this be laying the path for her to exit the race, really the beginning of the end, or was it going to be something different? Nikki Haley left no doubt as she began her speech saying this. Some of you, perhaps a few of you in the media, came here today to see if I'm dropping out of the race. Well, I'm not. South Carolina will vote on Saturday, but on Sunday, I'll still be running for president. I'm not going anywhere. So she talked about Sunday morning. Uh, It's an important piece of the puzzle when it comes to these presidential races that uh, the day after is what really matters. And so she set the groundwork there that she was going to stay in, continue clearly on through Super Tuesday and gave the indication that she would have the resources to continue on well beyond that. Uh, Of course, as the battle continues, uh, some important things to note, whether you are a Nikki Haley fan or not, whether you are on the side of the former president or not, if you look at it just from a strategic standpoint, I think she got the messaging right today. Uh, in terms of saying, look, the the current score is 63 delegates for former President Trump, 17 delegates for Nikki Haley, and you have to get to 1,215. And uh, she compared and contrasted a lot uh, throughout the course of this speech today, which I think was uh, really well-delivered, very well-crafted speech. Uh, During it, she compared and contrasted and did what we've been suggesting uh, she was going to be doing, uh, and that is that she was going to lump the former president and the current president together in terms of the dissatisfaction of the American people. Americans of every belief and background are tired of our national mess. They worry about a national collapse. If I weren't in the race, we'd be reading the exact same storyline every day until November 5th. There would be widespread reports of Americans suffering from a bad case of Biden-Trump fatigue. And it would be true. A stunning 70% of the country doesn't want a Biden-Trump rematch. Now, she's clearly playing in this space really interesting uh, because in South Carolina, which will have its primary on Saturday, uh, and the interesting thing in South Carolina, which is a pretty interesting history in terms of presidential races, including back in 2020 when, at the time, Bernie Sanders was the frontrunner for the Democrats. And then candidate Joe Biden was lagging, flailing, and many expected him to drop out of the race after South Carolina. But South Carolina shifted, really changed uh, and hinged 
on the endorsement of Representative Jim Clyburn. Uh, of course, uh, President Biden went on to win South Carolina, and that really changed the dynamic of the race. It really shifted everything. Uh, and so Nikki Haley was saying, look, uh, South Carolina could do that again. They could change the dynamic of the race. And interestingly, the Democrats had their primary in South Carolina back in early February, February 3rd, but only 4% of potential voters voted. And in South Carolina, you can vote in either the Democratic primary or the Republican primary. You just cannot vote in both. Uh, So Nikki Haley was clearly playing to many of those more moderate uh, Republicans and Democrats uh, who didn't vote in the primary, but who could vote this coming Saturday. That That's a big chunk of the vote there in South Carolina. If they all decided to show up, that would change the dynamic in a pretty big way. Uh, Nikki Haley advocated for a vigorous and rigorous contest for the Republican nomination, uh, actually saying that uh, what the Democrats were doing on the coronation front were actually making the Democrats weaker. The Democrats are getting weaker by holding a coronation for Biden. Republicans will get stronger through a vigorous competition. I think that's an important message, and I think it's one we all should get on, regardless of where we fall in the political spectrum. The more we have a rigorous and vigorous debate and competition, the better we're going to get. And I think that uh, both sides should really be doing that uh, for the sake of the American people. That's how we actually get better candidates uh, that lead to better presidents and better policy results for the American people. I think that's important. Uh, At several points during her speech today, she went directly after the former president, arguing that he's the only Republican that has a chance of losing to Joe Biden. The only candidate who's helping Joe Biden is Donald Trump, because Trump is the only Republican Biden can beat. The Democrats know it. They don't even try to conceal the glee at the prospect of running against Trump. They want to win. So they want the guy They've already beaten time and again. Trump knows it too, but he won't admit it. So that was an important part of the narrative, I think, coming out of the Nikki Haley campaign, because many are criticizing her saying the longer she stays in the race, the more it hurts the former president, the more it helps President Biden. uh, That could make a difference come November. And Nikki Haley really flipped that on its head and said, no, it's actually the other way around. Uh, The former president is the only one currently losing in a head-to-head against Joe Biden. Uh, And so the longer he stays around, the less optimal it is for Republicans. So she took that head on. I thought that was a a good part of her speech. Uh, I actually thought her strongest moments came towards the end of this speech. She gave her positive vision a way forward for the country's future. In the America I know and love, we disagree strongly, but we do it without hating each other and still have the same shared national purpose. In the America I know and love, we respect freedom, the rule of law. We refuse to use the awesome power of big government to punish those we dislike. And we recognize that America has done more good for more people than any country in the world. One other uh, particularly poignant part of uh, her speech today uh, was when she was talking about her husband, who is currently deployed. He is a major uh, in the reserve and is uh, being is deployed at the moment. And she talked about this whole idea of those military families who understand that the concept of America is worth fighting for, uh, worth dying for, and worth living for. Uh, all of those crucial components to that. 
So a long way, a big, uh, a big mountain to climb for sure for Nikki Haley in her race. But this is why we have the race, just like in athletics. Uh, everything can look one way on paper, but it's why you play the game. Because as you play the game, things change, dynamic shifts. Uh, and that can clearly happen. And so Nikki Haley clearly sending the message, this is not the beginning of the end of her campaign, just the end of the beginning. She'll be there come Sunday after the South Carolina primary, and she expects to go until the votes are counted so that the American people have a choice. Choice is a good thing everybody ought to celebrate. Better debates, better conversations is something we all need to get behind. Think again on Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. Hear elevated conversation on crucial issues. Boyd Matheson on Inside Sources. We're staying with the presidential politics as we continue on. Listeners to the show know we've been tracking tracking no labels uh, since it announced a plan to run a unity presidential ticket in 2024. Should we end up with a rematch of uh, former President Trump and current President Joe Biden. And they are still in the process of trying to figure out what that unity ticket might look like if there is a path to victory. I think that's another important thing for the organization. Uh, and so what does that path look like? Of course, we just listened to Nikki Haley saying she's uh, going to stay in for a while. So no exit strategy there as yet. But what does that mean for no labels? Uh, does it mean that uh, there will or won't be with some pretty high profile names uh, taking a pass this time around. Jared Gans, of course, is campaign reporter for The Hill, covering elections and both the federal and the state level. And a great piece at thehill.com. No labels looking at some dwindling options. And uh, Jared, welcome back to the show. Hi, right, thanks for having me. Uh, so give us a little sense. Obviously, we had the uh, two two of the highest profile names, uh, for sure. Uh, Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, who's uh, opting for a Senate run, which is a head a little bit of a head-scratcher for a lot of folks. Uh, and then West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin announcing, rolling into the weekend, that he was not going to be running on a presidential ticket uh, in 2024. So give us a sense. What's the lay of the land, and uh, what are the conversations sounding like when it comes to a potential third-party run? Absolutely. So as you know, uh, Larry Hogan and Joe Manchin, they were two of the most uh, high profile names that were getting attention who could have ended up on a possible no labels ticket, no labels, which is looking to run this unity ticket composed of one Republican and one Democrat, uh, which would potentially run on a centrist platform if we do have a rematch between Trump and Biden. And now with both of them choosing different routes to not run for president, uh, it's a bit unclear as to who may potentially step up to fill their spot. There are a number of other names that have at times been rumored that pundits have wondered if they might be interested. But over the months, Hogan and Manchin have both definitely received the most attention. So in terms of name recognition, they would have had seemingly a bigger advantage heading in than uh, another candidate if no labels decides to go there. Yeah. And have you uh, have you been he- hearing any specific names in your conversations and uh, kind of from your unique vantage point there, any of those maybe second tier kind of names that uh, might be bubbling up? Absolutely. There have been a number of names. One of the most uh, high profile names otherwise um, is, in fact, Nikki Haley, who is uh, still staying in the Republican race. But Haley, after um, a number of new labels, had said that they would give serious consideration to her. Haley said herself that she's not interested. Uh, Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who had run in the Republican primary, 
actually refused to roll out a possible third party run earlier this month. But he said any decision in which she does uh, choose to run would need to have a clear path to victory, a clear path to get to 270 electoral votes. So it's really uncertain if he would be willing to do that. And there are a number of other politicians who have tied themselves to no labels and supported the idea of the effort. Former Utah Governor John Huntsman has been supportive, but he said as far as uh, his own considerations are concerned, he is not interested in running for president. Yeah. And so as you as you look at some of the reasoning uh, behind that, it was, some, it was interesting in your piece, uh, you noted that some people are looking at uh, the organization as a whole and whether or not they're really ready for that prime time, that big time in terms of trying to run a national kind of race. Does that seem to have weighed in in terms of both Hogan and Manchin in terms of their decisions that perhaps the group wasn't as sophisticated or as organized as you'd actually have to be in order to really run a serious uh, national campaign? It's certainly possible for Hogan and for Manchin when they made their announcements, Hogan to run for Senate and Manchin to just not run. They didn't directly refer to the possibility of them running under the no labels ticket, but they did seem it seemed that strategists wondered if they saw what their decisions were as a, a better path. Hogan, potentially a more viable path to run for Senate and um, strategists said that uh, no labels might not be ready for running a, a serious presidential campaign. It's not an easy thing to be able to run a presidential campaign, and it's definitely quite a tall task. And the Democrats and the Republicans have really had a head start, whereas no labels, it's not clear if they're going to run a ticket or who would potentially be on there. And they're going to have a lot less time than the two major parties have had uh, heading into November. Yeah. And one of the things that we have pointed out is just the the difficulty and the expense of getting on the ballot, getting that ballot access in all 50 states. Uh, You uh, noted in your reporting that there are about 14 or 16 uh, where they are now. It's a long way to 50, but they seem to be confident they can get there. Uh, That also had to weigh in on some of these uh, higher profile folks saying, look, that's a that is a big, tall order uh, to get there. And uh, what does that actually tell us in terms of ballot access? And uh, what does that mean moving forward? Absolutely. So as you know, it's uh, currently no labels has reserved a spot for 16 states. And they are vowing that they will they do expect to reach access on all 50 states. And they do still have time on that. Most states uh, filing deadlines are not for a few months away. Um, a spokesperson for No Labels noted that in 1992, when Ross Perot mounted his independent run, he didn't join the race until February of that year, and he was able to get access to all 50 states. So it's definitely still a possibility. But in terms of being viable, a third-party run is difficult to do. Ross Perot ran the most successful third-party run in modern uh, American politics, and he still only received about 19% of the vote and failed to win a single state. So it's definitely a tall task, even if No Labels is able to get on the ballot in all 50 states, they will need to figure out a strategy to have a potentially viable uh, ticket to compete with the Democrats and the Republicans. Yeah, no question about that. Anything else you're watching kind of under the radar in terms of uh, how this might play out in the coming weeks? Obviously, we have South Carolina this week. I'm I'm actually watching... uh, uh, Nikki Haley right now uh, saying one more time that she's not uh, interested in a no labels 
uh, bid right now. She's staying in until the last vote is counted on the Republican side. Uh, is there anything that, that you're kind of keeping your eye on that might indicate any kind of shifts or changes or, or maybe a dark horse candidate uh, coming out that might take that no labels ticket? Absolutely. So there's a number of third party candidates who are already in the race. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Cornell West, Jill Stein, and strategists from both sides seem to note that this recognized the continued discontent for the two very likely presidential candidates that we're going to have in the fall, Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Both are very unpopular in the polls, and voters overwhelmingly do not want to see a rematch of the 2020 race. So really, it, it remains open and uniquely potentially in 2024 that we could continue to see candidates jumping in the race as the months go on that we might not be expecting. There have been a number of names that have been floated, but it's definitely remains possible that a name that hasn't been floated could decide to join the race and see if they can shake things up with so many people uh, seemingly turned off to the two very likely choices going into November. All right. Uh, great reporting. Uh, Jared Gans, of course, campaign reporter for The Hill, covering elections, both federal and state. And a great piece at thehill.com. Check that out today as well. Uh, Jared, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So over the last uh, 30 minutes, we've been really breaking down where the state of the race is. Of course, that began today with Nikki Haley declaring her state of the race, where things fall in terms of her campaign. And uh, she made a, a speech that I think was one of her better speeches laying out the case, uh, talking about the reasons why she's staying in and why that actually matters. She's now making the rounds on all of the national cable news networks, uh, reiterating her stance that she is going to stay in, uh, that this is not the beginning of the end, just the end of the beginning, and and really making the case why. And you also heard from Jared Gans there that, uh, that people are just not satisfied with these choices if this ends up uh, being what it looks like in terms of a Biden-Trump 2.0 presidential election. And as we all know, uh, every day, every week is an eternity in an election year, uh, particularly a presidential election year. Uh, And so we have to keep letting these things play out. Nikki Haley said she will still be standing on Sunday morning, regardless of what happens in South Carolina. Uh, She's making a big push and pitch to all voters in North Carolina, assuming South Carolina, uh, 94% of which are eligible to vote in the South Carolina primary on Saturday. We'll see what happens there, if that changes things or if the status quo continues to prevail. We'll step aside for some bottom of the hour news. More inside sources coming up next. Stick around. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. America's voice of reason. Boyd Matheson on Utah's home for elevated conversation. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. We're going to dig into something that uh, has always been troublesome to me, and it uh, is becoming a bigger trouble, I think, as the years go on, as we look more and more to government to drive business, to pick winners and losers. all the lobbying that goes on. And so there's this very interesting trend uh, that I think we have to take a good look at. And we're going to do that uh, for the next two segments of the show. And we're going to start by looking at some of the political efforts that we see. And some of them are are well-named and some of them even well-intentioned. Whether it's restoring American industrialization, whether it's trying to get jobs back on U.S. shores, whether it's trying to uh, boost the industrial base, the manufacturing base, uh, the trend 
is what's worrisome, and that is the overpromise and either underdelivery or non-delivery on the promise, uh, often leaving states and cities uh, and even businesses holding the bag. Uh, politicians uh, really love to make a great announcement about a new manufacturing plant in the local area or that some big business is going to come to town and bring all kinds of jobs and be a great boon to the economy. The interesting thing, though, uh, is that in many cases, those end up coming up empty. So sometimes to attract uh, investment, new facilities, it uh, seems that uh, no tax break is too big or no promise is too grand for our government officials to make the deal happen. And there's all kind of fanfare. There's big media headlines. There are promises of thousands of jobs and great impact. Uh, but often, uh, once the talking and the shouting has ended, uh, everything ends. And the delivery of the deals falls apart way before any positive results are realized. So I want to go back and we're going to look at a couple of these, uh, both historically and some that are happening right now. Uh, in fact, uh, coming up at 150, uh, Christine uh, Mui is going to join us from Politico about an interesting thing going on in Michigan right now related to the Chips and Science Act. Uh, but I want to go back a little bit first. Uh, let's go back to the uh, Trump administration. Uh, back in 2018, then-President Trump broke ground for what was touted as a historic facility in Wisconsin. Uh, the company was Foxcom, and uh, he deemed that uh, the unbuilt facility was going to be the eighth wonder of the world. Take a listen. To Foxconn and to all of the amazing Wisconsin workers with us today and all over the state, I want to wish you good luck and congratulations on truly one of the eighth wonder. I, I think we can say this is, we can say, the eighth wonder of the world. This is the eighth wonder of the world. But this is something so special. So I want to just congratulate you all. Thank you very much. Thank you to Scott Walker. Thank you, everybody. Great honor to be with you. Good luck. Enjoy this great facility. Thank you. So that was then, and then nothing happened. Uh, amazingly, this uh, 100-foot-tall sphere is just one of buildings in this big, massive space that was going to be, according to then-President Trump, the eighth wonder of the world. And it is now a 100-foot-tall sphere in an empty lot. That's it. The end. <laughs> so uh, the owner, a Taiwanese manufacturer, Foxconn, uh, calls it a high-performance uh, computing data center, uh, but nothing's happened. Uh, nothing went through. It all kind of fell apart. Uh, one person called it uh, kind of a low-rent Epcot Center-looking space with just a lot of concrete, uh, a big parking lot with nothing there. Uh, and this is often the case. Uh, she, some of the reporting on this was really interesting, and that is that the state government spent about $500 million to buy the land, bulldoze the houses that were there, uh, clear space for this uh infrastructure that needed to be put in place and then and then it didn't happen and this happens over and over and over again and it happens not only from the federal level it happens at the state level as well in fact let's go to 2019 uh, and now we'll uh, leave Wisconsin and we'll go to New Jersey New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy announced amazingly historic investment in an offshore wind farm through the company Orsted 
that was going to change the energy landscape of the East Coast forever. Hey everybody, Governor Phil Murphy here. New Jersey just took a historic step of its first award to develop 1,100 megawatts of offshore wind energy. This will revolutionize the offshore industry here in New Jersey and along the entire East Coast. It will start us on the road to creating good union jobs and inviting new investment in our state. This is a truly historic step to making New Jersey a global leader in offshore wind development and deployment. Changing the landscape and the energy of the East Coast forever until it didn't. Didn't happen. So two big wind farms off the coast of New Jersey scrapped. The company behind it all uh, ended up having to take a write-off, probably $5.6 billion or more, and suddenly it's gone. And so it's so easy for elected officials and politicians to come in with the big claims, whether it was the Democratic governor of New Jersey or former President Donald Trump saying this is going to be the eighth wonder of the world, this is going to change the landscape, create jobs, on and on and on and on when it's the federal government that's driving and picking the winners and losers and tilting the marketplace, it rarely ends well. And I'm not saying there's not a role for government to play in some of these things. I I think there is a, a place. But what we have to be careful of is that when we make it the place, uh, you can think of Solyndra, uh, going back to the Obama administration, was going to change everything around uh having uh, solar panels forever and it didn't happen. And why didn't it happen? Cause they got a whole lot of money and cash flow covers a multitude of problems in an organization and Solyndra didn't cut it, but they were picked as the winner. And I actually think it put the, the solar panel industry and our innovation way behind schedule because it drove out a lot of those small startup companies that were really looking for that cutting edge advantage Instead, government picks the winners and everybody gets real comfortable real fast because they've got cash. uh, And then the real results don't materialize. Now, President Biden made some historic promises. Amazing how they all start with uh, historic. This will be the eighth wonder of the world, historic investment. Uh, Here's President Biden as he signed the Chips and Science Act. Today, I'm signing the law of the Chips and Science Act a once-in-a-generation investment in America itself, a law that the American people can be proud of. These companies see what I see, that the future of the chip industry is going to be made in America. Now, during his speech, the president named specific companies who have promised investment in America's semiconductor manufacturing. One of those companies is Hemlock Semiconductors, located in Michigan. Nearly one-third of all the chips in the world use polysilicon made in hemlock. Imagine if we had more of these kinds of factories across the country. This law will make that a reality. All right, we're going to stay with the conversation and find out what happened in Michigan, what didn't happen in Michigan, and why it all matters. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason on Inside Sources. 
Welcome back to Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. It's great to be with you today, as always. If you're just joining us, we've been uh, spending the last half hour talking about some of the areas where things go wrong. Sometimes big political promises or big elected officials' uh, engagement doesn't always turn into real results when it comes to what we're looking for in the end. Uh, so in the last segment, we went all the way back to uh, the time when uh, uh, President Trump was in the White House, made a big promise about uh, some things happening in Wisconsin. He actually declared them to be the eighth wonder of the world. And now it's just a big globe uh, with an empty parking lot. Nothing happened. We talked about the state level. This happens all the times with tax breaks and incentives and so on. Uh, we talked about the New Jersey governor saying that uh, the wind farm, the two wind farms they were proposing would change energy on the East Coast forever. Uh, nothing happened. In fact, the uh, company involved uh, had to take a $5.6 billion loss on their books uh, because it just didn't materialize. Uh, and then just before we went to the break, of course, uh, President Biden has made some big promises with the Chips and Science Act. And now they're sort of turning into some problems for the president. And uh, someone who wrote extensively about that today in Politico, Christine Mui, uh, is a reporting fellow at Politico, talked about uh, the president's high tech problem in Michigan. And Christine, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, as part of our uh, equal opportunity offenders, it's now uh, President Biden's turn <laughs> under the microscope in terms of some of these things that uh, states in particular look at and say, oh, this will be so great. It'll create jobs and it'll be great for the economy and it'll change the dynamic in the state. And, and it doesn't always turn out that way. So help us understand uh, what happened with the Chips and Science Act, particularly with Hemlock Semiconductor in the state of Michigan. Right. So as I wrote today, you know, the day that Biden signed the CHIPS Act back in 2002, he was on the White House South Lawn and he had named or gave a shout out to Hemlock Semiconductor. So they're based in Michigan. They've been making polysilicon, which is, you know, the material that you need for all microchips or most microchips. Um, and, you know, the problem that's arise is that there's this tax credit in the CHIPS and Science Act. Uh, it's significant. It's estimated to be worth $24 billion over a decade. And Hemlock and other suppliers are saying that they've been cut out of this tax credit. Now, that's not set in stone yet. The Treasury Department still needs to finalize those rules. But that's basically the concern that they're raising here. Yeah. And so the, and that is often the case where you get kind of the ribbon cutting or the, the big announcement moment. Uh, and then all the details get going. And this is one of those where, as you said, it's not set in stone yet. So there's still a chance uh, to do this. But I know that the, the White House has been hearing pretty loudly uh, from Hemlock and others who are saying, hey, wait a minute, uh, you're, you're cutting us out of this. Kind of describe how those conversations are going. What are they what's the message they're sending to the president and to the White House? Yeah, so I've been talking, you know, to a lot of lawmakers and politicians that have been advocating on hemlock in the polysilicon industry's behalf. So the governor of Michigan, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, sent a letter to Biden um, reminding him of that moment in his Chips Act speech and basically saying this is, you know, a critical mo moment for us if we want to win out over China um, in this space. I talked to the congressional delegation, the Democrats. Uh, in that delegation have also uh, sent letters to Treasury officials, and they've also had conversations with administration officials. Hemlock itself has sent comments to the IRS, and they've gotten the support of trade groups in the semiconductor industry. And just this morning, CNBC had Leo Brainerd on, who's the director of the National Economic Council. And, you know, she didn't really have a clear answer 
or if this is going to make its way into the guidance. Uh, and, as, you know, as you can see from my story, the, when I reached out to the White House um, and the Trumpers and Treasury Departments for comment, they also didn't comment on if this will make its way into the guidance once those rules are finalized. Yeah. One of the other things you pointed out in your piece that I thought was so important, uh, you talked about kind of the lobbying efforts that uh, <laughs> that begin the moment an announcement, you know, like the Chips and Science Act uh, is is made public. You get all of these uh, lobbyists out there trying to angle for a carve out, a payout or, or whatever it may be. Kind of describe that for our listeners in terms of how it's played out in this particular case. Yeah. So, um, you know, as you mentioned, in the CHIPS Act's early days, so this is when, you know, it was first signed, I think there was still you know, some, there are companies, right, that even before that were trying to make their way into the law and the support that it would give. But there are also these companies that, you know, Politico has reported on that had this not so clear connection to microchips. So you had FedEx, for example, um, because there's part of the law that supports uh, this concept called advanced packaging, which is basically how you're putting the chips together to maximize computing power. I guess FedEx thought there that that had some connection to the packaging that they do, um, but those are two very different concepts. And so, a bit, you know, in regards to the tax credit and for chip stock implementation in general, there's this bigger question for each of these incentives, which is basically how far do you go? Um, you know, even just looking at the semiconductor supply chain, it's massive. Um, I wrote in my article that at some point, more than half you know, the elements on the periodic table have been used in semiconductor manufacturing. And so, you know, Hemlock's case here is that they are the base material for chips. And polysilicon, which is, is the material that gives, you know, these chips their semiconductive properties, basically. So they're arguing that they have a unique case over these other suppliers, um, but, you know, there are also industrial gas and chemical makers who have been lobbying for this. And they were at, you know, the same IRS hearing that Hemlock was at. That's mm, so fascinating. And it's so interesting to see how this plays out. And one other thing that you, you noted in your piece that kind of caught my attention was when you look at these kinds of incentives, uh, again, they always sound good on the front end. And then some kind, sometimes when they get turned over to the agency or to the IRS, uh, then all these little technicalities or these uh, processes get put in place. And suddenly these big incentives are sort of gone. And and then the likelihood that we'll see bigger investment as opposed to incremental investment, uh, the game really changes. Right. And that's exactly what Hemlock has sort of argued uh, on behalf of their case is that the cost of you know these types of investments are huge so they're saying it'll take billions you know for us to build uh plants like this and you know while that there is another part of the chips act the grants um which have kind of been the headlines you know, making the headlines for the you know most beneficial incentive from it um there was just the global foundries announcement yesterday but, you know, there's this whole other part, you know, that industries are basically arguing we need both. We need as much help as we can get um, to make it worth it for us to invest, you know, these billions of dollars that we need to expand. And so Hemlock, you know, told the IRS basically without federal support, we can't do this. Um, they've made other investments in like local infrastructure upgrades, but that's kind of a stepping stone to actually expanding their ability to make more polysilicon. 
Yeah, it's such a, an important part of that conversation. Just in our last minute here, uh, give us some of the political implications for the Biden administration and for the Biden campaign. Uh, obviously, you've got a lot of big name Democrats like Governor Whitmer and others uh, weighing in. Uh, is that impacting anything in terms of a real crucial presidential state uh, in a crucial presidential year? Uh, so I think at large, right, uh, there's this that's a big question still, is how exactly will these CHIP investments in different states, not just Michigan, but also states that are seeing heavy investment like Arizona and aren't being you know, held up, how will those play into you know, Biden's messaging ahead of the election? You know, he has this broader kind of manufacturing uh, messaging and also, of course, you know, it ties into his economic messaging. And so you know, it's not clear yet if this is a, you know, a huge issue for the Democrats that you mentioned, but it is notable that, yes, these are, you know, his allies in a swing state. Yeah, and that's such a, an important part of that whole conversation. Uh, great piece in Politico, politico.com. Check that out today. President Biden has a high-tech problem in Michigan. Uh, great analysis, great reporting. Christine Mui a reporting fellow at Politico. Uh, Christine, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Again, that's Christine Mui from Politico, and it's a great piece. And to me, it just comes full circle in our conversation as it's very easy on the front end uh, to tout these things. Again, President Biden touted this uh, particular company, Hemlock, uh, in the state of Michigan, uh, dealing with silicone and semiconductors. This was going to be such an important boon. It's going to bring manufacturing and all of those things. And then sometimes when it gets turned over to the agency or to the IRS and the rules start being written, things change. And it's why we have to always be a little cautious uh, and lean in and listen hard when it comes to a lot of these big promises, when it comes to government bringing in jobs, changing the economy, uh, make a difference. And again, we've uh, equal opportunity offended them all from former President Trump to the New Jersey governor, state of Michigan. Uh, We all have to be very careful uh, when it comes to big promises from big government to change big business. It doesn't always deliver the result that we think we're going to get. All right, that wraps up hour number one of Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. We'll step aside for some top of the hour news, but don't go anywhere. When we come back, we're going to take a deep dive look inside of Russia and what comes next for Vladimir Putin's regime and what comes next for the cause of freedom. Stick around. We'll do that in hour number two of Inside Sources coming up next. KSL FM Midvale. KSL Salt Lake City. From the KSL Common Spirit Health Studios. This is KSL News Radio. Utah's news, traffic, and weather station. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. America's voice of reason. Boyd Matheson. On Utah's home for elevated conversation. Inside Sources. On KSL News Radio. We've watched the world react to Alexei Navalny's death this weekend uh, with lots of questions looming beyond that. I think primarily, what does this mean for Russia's political future? So for the next half hour, we're going to take an in-depth, deep-dive look at some opposing points of view in terms of what the death of this oppositional giant will actually mean for Vladimir Putin. Will it spark public outrage or will it scare the Russian people away from any kind of public protest or activity? So let's get beyond the headlines. Let's begin. 
Think you know the news of the day? Think again with Boyd Matheson on KSL News Radio. All right, so first we're going to look at the positive component to this and uh, someone who believes that uh, as we started our show that uh, this may not be uh, end, beginning of the end. It may be end of beginning. And so I want to start with a uh, an NPR interview with Russian opposition activist Alexei uh, Miniano uh, to hear what he thinks democracy's future is post-Navalny. Uh, this is really important in terms of what does it mean? What is it going to do inside of Russia? What does it mean for someone like Vladimir Putin uh, when you have this kind of death and how the public responds is going to be fascinating. So, again, this was on uh, NPR, and uh, it really is this idea that the fight for democracy uh, has to be has to be bigger than any one individual, no matter how big a figure they actually are. Yes, of course. As much as leaders are important, democracy depends on regular people, not just on super big figures, on symbolic figures and on leaders of political parties or of opposition. If uh, we would say that, oh, Navalny died, so now there will be no democracy in Russia, that means that all, all our job was futile and all that Alexei did was futile, but it is not so. I think that is a such a vital part of the conversation right there, uh, that if democracy depends on a single individual, even a big personality and a big heroic figure like Alexei Navalny, uh, then it really isn't there because democracy depends on regular people, everyday citizens, not just the big public figures, not just the big present figures. And so I think that's an important part of this conversation is what is going on inside of Russia uh, and who feel one who feels it from the, the big voice and face of the opposition. But far more important, uh, what's happening underneath that with the Russian people? Navalny built his legacy on his own personal conviction. He obviously committed his life uh, to integrity and freedom, uh, even at the sacrifice of his own safety, as we reported out last week. Uh, his willingness to go back into Russia knowing what awaited him. It's one of the main things Navalny did. He set a personal example that a person of oppositional convictions can put his freedom on the line, put his life on the line to stand up for a better Russia. And so having someone who is willing to put their own life on the line to stand up for freedom, I think, is is an important thing for people to be able to follow. Uh, But it's not enough. Uh, and I think this is such a crucial conversation to get to is if it is all based on a single person, a single leader, then you really don't have a movement anyway, uh, which is just contrary to, to everything. So so the interesting thing to me, and uh, I think what NPR really focused on in a very positive way was, look, the opinion of the Putin regime is already low, uh, bound to get worse as the economy continues to falter and stumble. Uh, even if uh, Vladimir Putin uh, does crack down on anyone supporting democracy, uh, he's got this looming financial unrest that is going to come to bear and may give the Russian people one more thing to rally around. When he runs out of money, he will have much harder time solving these problems, which will lead to more and more people being unhappy with the regime. And that will impose a more severe threat to his power than activists laying flowers uh, to uh, commemorate uh, Navalny. 
And so as we look at how this all continues to play out, I, I think this whole idea of don't give up on a better Russia, I think that is the message to the Russian people uh, that they can't cower in the corner just because Navalny has lost his life uh, it, because it takes everyone. Uh, and I think one of the things that, that I have been hearing uh, from from my sources, particularly in D.C. and some of those who have deep ties into Russia, is uh, you can't underestimate what is just below the surface. And will there be a space, will there be a moment that will really ignite the Russian people? Uh, and uh, if they don't, then again, the status quo prevails and that benefits Vladimir Putin. Now, some people believe that uh, this is actually good for Vladimir Putin. We'll talk about that coming up at 220 uh, as we dig in with Ishan Theror from The Washington Post saying this may just galvanize the Putin regime and give them a little more ironclad control on what's going on in the country uh, because they've taken out this big opposition leader. Uh, I think the important thing for the Russian people to remember uh, is that it always starts with just a few. Uh, and it's uh, it's the old saying that uh, one person with an idea uh, may be considered crazy. Two people with the same idea might be foolish, but not crazy. Ten people with the same idea, and they start to act. A hundred, and people start to take notice. A thousand people with the same idea, and they start to have results, tangible and real. Ten thousand, and they begin to change the course of a community. A hundred thousand, they can change the course of a country and more. And the question for everyone is, will we be part of that? And I think that will be the question for the Russian people, is will they be part of that? Uh, will they see the death of Navalny as the end of an era uh, and a time for freedom to go even further underground inside of Vladimir Putin's Russia? Or will it be a galvanizing force uh, in that spark of freedom? Uh, to galvanize and bring people together to say we we have to take a stand. Uh, and I think, as uh, was pointed out, uh, one of the big challenges for Vladimir Putin is the economy. Uh, if he runs out of money, everything gets much harder to keep together. Uh, as long as he has it, uh, as we always say, cash flow covers a multitude of problems in a country, in a company or an organization. Uh, and so watching that part of it will be very interesting to see as well. Uh, and we're going to dig all the way through this uh, to look at what does it mean. Uh, I think there are elements inside of Russia and the Russian people uh, who are ready for some of that change to begin. Uh, and that will happen as they stand up. And again, if the economy continues to stumble, then I think the people will be even more motivated to say we've had enough of the Vladimir Putin path and all of this. Uh, and it's time for change and it's time to move towards uh, democracy and freedom. So we'll see how that all plays out. Uh, and again, I think there uh, is a end of the beginning moment, I think, for the Russian people. Uh, when we come back, we'll stay with the conversation. We'll be joined by Ishan Theror from The Washington Post, uh, who is looking at some of the other side of that coin in terms of could this embolden Vladimir Putin? We'll unpack all of that coming up next. Think again on Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason on Inside Sources. Welcome back to Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. It's great to be with you today. As always, I am Boyd Matheson. We're staying with the conversation as it relates to Russia. 
as we look at the future, and we want to look at some different perspectives in terms of what this means. We talked about uh, the the death of Alexei Navalny, uh, opposition leader, and would that be a catalyst? Would that spark a, a positive insurgency inside of Russia in opposition to Vladimir Putin, or or does this just allow Vladimir Putin to cement and tighten his grip uh, as dictator and ruler in Russia? And so we want to dig into that portion of it to explore uh, where we are and what that means moving forward, both for the people inside of Russia, what it means for Ukraine, what it means for the rest of us around the world in terms of security. And uh, it's always a good day when we can have Ishan Theror, columnist on the foreign desk of The Washington Post. A great piece talking about the death of Alexei Navalny and what that means for Vladimir Putin and his dictatorship inside the country. And uh, Ishan, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, boy. Good to be with you. Uh, so give us some some uh, perspective from your point of view in terms of how things have played out, what you've been watching over the weekend, uh, and how you see kind of the, the state of the game inside of Russia today. Well, I think, you know, we're on a, a rather tragic trajectory here. I think, uh, and I, I talked to a bunch of, of colleagues and, and friends who are journalists who have followed the Russian story closer than me, some of whom have known Navalny for many years, uh, interviewed him in years past. He was a known entity, of course, to the foreign press corps, to everyone. Um, and he was a really larger-than-life figure. And, you know, folks you talk to who knew him, say, a decade ago or, or even half a decade ago, um, never could imagine that even though he was this incredibly charismatic, um, successful dissident, you know, someone who really could speak to uh, a huge segment of the Russian population outside of the kind of liberal enclaves in among elite circles in Moscow and St. Petersburg, um, that they could never imagine half a decade ago or a decade ago that he would actually be killed. Mm. Uh, but this is the course that we're on with the, the regime of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Uh, this is uh, a reflection of how tight a grip Putin's rule uh, requires. Uh, now and um, you know, in one way, you can read this. You know, the fact that he had to kill Navalny can be read as a sign of Putin's weakness. That mm-hmm. this is, you know, he, Navalny represented something too potent and too dangerous to the Putin regime. But on another way of reading it, you can suggest that Putin is so supreme, so confident, so well entrenched that uh, he could just go ahead and do what he wanted, knowing that there'd be few consequences to this action. Yeah. And let's, let's unpack that just a little bit, because I, I do think that's such an interesting take in terms of looking at it on the, the one hand, uh, uh, you know, Navalny uh, in his own uh, kind of prophetic video uh, that was to be released, you know, if he were killed to say, look, if they kill me, it's because they're so weak and we've become so strong. And so you do sort of have that galvanizing moment there. At the same time, uh, as you pointed out in, in your piece, that uh, Putin seems to be walking with a, a real sense of ease in terms of his absolute control and, and hold on power. Oops, did we lose him? Nope. We, sorry, <laughs> we we lost Ishan for just a moment there. <laughs> I thought he was giving a very deep, thoughtful <laughs> answer there. <laughs> uh, and so uh, while we're waiting to get uh, Ishan back on the line, uh, some of the other points that Ishan uh, pointed out in his piece uh, is this idea that the the dictator's ability to annihilate what he fears 
really is a measure of his hold on power. Uh, and as his ability to choose the time uh, of his strike, Putin appears to be feeling optimistic about his own future. Uh, and so it is it's clear to me that Vladimir Putin is fearing is feeling very emboldened. Uh, and I think part of that is because of the uh the uncertainty coming out of the United States, even in simple things in terms of support for Ukraine. Uh, and that as long as Vladimir Putin sees that the U.S. is is waffling or wavering uh, in terms of a commitment to, to be helpful to people in the region, that certainly emboldens Vladimir Putin uh, and allows him to do this. I, I think the greater the fear, the less likely he would be to take out someone like Navalny. Uh, for fear that it would spark that kind of uprising that could lead to his overthrow. Remember, uh, people who are dictators uh, and thugs and bad guys in power, their their whole focus is to stay in power until they're gone, uh, until their life is over. That's the whole goal. They, they care about very little else. Uh, we've seen that in North Korea. We see that in China uh, in terms of just that positioning to just stay in power. And so they're not likely to do things that are going to overturn that. Uh, the last thing Vladimir Putin wants to face is his own people. Uh, and so I think uh, his ability, his confidence in saying it, it's okay if we take out uh, Alexei Navalny uh, shows, I think, how confident he is in his positioning or the absence of opposition, particularly from the United States, uh, but from the rest of the world as well. That as long as there's hesitation, as long as there's vacillation back and forth in terms of what people will or won't do as it relates to Putin's actions, whether it's in his invasion in Ukraine or otherwise, uh, he, he has to have a great deal of confidence. And it looks like we got Ishan uh, back and uh, was just going to ask you just kind of your your sense in terms of is it uh, the idea that uh, that he doesn't have to worry because the U.S. is – uh, is maybe not in as strong a position or is clearly divided in terms of uh, how they're going to oppose Vladimir Putin and his actions. Is that just emboldening to him to where he can say, there's really no downside risk to me in terms of eliminating a potential rival? Uh, I think there's a, a confluence of factors that give Putin a, a degree of confidence right now. Um, the, the kind of battlefield the dynamics in Ukraine are tilting in Russia's favor, and that, of course, is aided by the sense of what oh i think we lost Deshaun again <laughs> well we'll 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 continue on uh i think one of the other important parts uh that uh Ishan Theroux, again this is a, it's a great column in the, the washington post you should check that out today uh to talk about what happens in terms of this state of affairs and i think on one hand you have to say look alexei navalny left uh, an indelible mark uh, millions of Russians uh, turn to his allies in exile for their news. Uh, they have to do that secretly, of course, or through a VPN so they can get accurate information about what's actually going on inside the country. Uh, I think the social media realm where Navalny was uh, both a, a pioneer from operating inside of Russia, also kind of the, the king of all of that. Uh, and there's all kinds of forums and discussion groups uh, that bear that out, uh, that, uh, of course, the, the state... Vladimir Putin's state uh, is determined to snuff out. So I, I think it's it's fair to say that Alexei Navalny unleashed uh, a lot of things that aren't likely to go away anytime soon uh, in terms of that spark of freedom and that desire for the Russian people to stand up and to stand against uh, 
Vladimir Putin at the same time, because Vladimir Putin feels like he is so strong and so untouchable, uh, even by the West. Uh, So you have to look at those two components to it. You have within Russia, his own people. Will they rise up against him? Uh, And then you have the rest of the world. Who will stand with those uh, who will stand up against Vladimir Putin? Because often the question in this kind of tumultuous situation within a country is not just who is willing to storm the castle, but it's who shows up after that. Uh, I think Vladimir Putin believes he could survive an uprising of his own people. The question would be, would the rest of the world show up to finish the job and to finish him? Uh, And at this point, it doesn't appear that Vladimir Putin is afraid of anyone else uh, showing up at the castle to actually finish the job. All right. uh, We'll step aside for some bottom of the hour news. When we come back, more inside sources right here on KSL News Radio. Stick around. We'll be right back. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. America's Voice of Reason. Boyd Matheson on Utah's home for elevated conversation. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. You know, some days it can feel like America has lost any and all sense of how to properly interact with each other. Now, let's be really clear America has always had big time disagreements open, broiling debate. It's actually when I think the country's at its best, by the way. Uh, And our constitutional republic ensures that. And we're always looking at the choices, chance to champion the best idea, let things compete in the marketplace of ideas. And so, of course, uh, there's going to be things that happen and disagreements that will take place along the way. Uh, But again, as we look at how the polarization is happening, particularly in our politics, uh, we have to look at the downstream stuff as well. Uh, in terms of what is this, how is this impacting other elements and segments? And I think one of the things we have to remember is that if we keep politics downstream from important things like relationships, family, community, uh, all of those interconnected things, we always do a little better in this country. But when we let the politics be upstream from all of those, uh, things start to unravel. And we're seeing that kind of unraveling. Uh, I want to turn our attention to... Uh, A piece, a great piece uh, in The Atlantic. Derek Thompson uh, wrote a piece for The Atlantic called Why Americans Suddenly Stopped Hanging Out. And Derek Thompson is a staff writer at The Atlantic. He's the author of Work in Progress newsletters, also the author of the book Hitmakers and On Work. And uh, he really wrote a brilliant piece. And I want to break down a couple of elements of that because I think it helps us understand of all the things that are going on. It's a complex problem why we are less connected as a society. Some of it is the increase in screen time, uh, lack of community and community spaces as well. Uh, and there's a, But there's a whole host of things that can help us in terms of solution. Uh, but, but let's go back historically first. Uh, in the earliest decades, uh, Derek Thompson pointed out in the Atlantic, the United States was celebrated for its citizens' extroversion. Americans weren't just setting out to to build a new church or a new set of cities. Their association, as Tocqueville pointed out, uh, was about associations. It was all about the associations, free associations. Tocqueville said it was a thousand different types of associations, religious, moral, serious, futile, very general, very limited, immensely large, and very minute. Uh, Those were all words from Alexis de Tocqueville. And Americans seem to be especially good 
at forming social groups. And whether it was a social group, whether it was a labor union, whether it was a political association, uh, all of those things were opportunities to connect. And often, in connection with connecting, they just hung out. Uh, Tocqueville noted that nothing deserves more attention than the intellectual and moral associations in America. Uh, That was at the beginning. Now, if you put things into fast forward, uh, things started to shift and started to decline. Uh, You may remember back in the uh, 90s, uh, sociologist Robert Putnam uh, really recognized the fact that our associations were starting to decline. Uh, He actually wrote uh, his bestseller, Bowling Alone. Uh, He was uh, we actually had him on this uh, show several times talking about why it is that we're no longer joining groups, that we're not having book clubs and bowling leagues and all of those things. And there's a host of reasons for all of that. Many of them are pretty straightforward. I think we understand. Uh, But I think one of the big things we have to look at is this whole idea that uh, aloneness is not necessarily loneliness. Uh, but it's the fact that we're doing things together less. And in that process, we've actually increased anxiety. We've increased dissatisfaction. Uh, all of those things have risen as our interconnectedness has declined. And so as we look at the the causes of all of that, I think some of them are very obvious and very easy. Uh, the electronics, I think, is a, a big part of that. Americans spend more time on their screens and less time with each other. Uh, That's a pretty easy, pretty straightforward thing. Uh, Some of the other things that have been impacting it, uh, New York Times uh, author Jessica Gross noted that the fact that we're working more and more, uh, we're just busy and we're chasing a lot of stuff. And whether we're chasing things at the office or we're chasing things at home, we're just chasing a lot. And the more you chase, the less likely you are to connect and have interconnection and to just hang out and to just be a good be together. Uh, One other explanation that was pointed out in the Atlantic piece uh, was that the the rise of aloneness is a part of the erosion of the social infrastructure. Uh, That civil society, that community connection uh, is something that we're losing. And whether that's uh, not being at a church, not having a place to hang out, not having the local coffee shop or the local diner, Uh, where people naturally connected with each other and had conversations. Conversations over the back fence uh, have clearly declined. I think our fences have gotten taller uh, and our locks become more secure. Uh, And so we're no longer doing that. And so all of that uh, takes away from the things that we actually need to thrive as human beings. And uh, I think it's uh, real crucial to, to point out that You know, when we come into this world, uh, in the Atlantic piece, it was pointed out that we we come into the world craving the presence of other human beings. Uh, That's what a baby wants the most, is that presence. And we've talked about it on this show before. Uh, I still believe that the most holy thing you can give another person is your presence, your whole presence, W-H-O-L-E, your whole and entire presence presence, Uh, not just a portion of your brain while you're still scanning your phone and checking your social media feed, but your whole entire presence uh, is where you actually get into real relationship with others. And so we've had this deterioration in the country of our social fitness, our interconnectedness has declined. 
And as we continue to spread out, as we continue to become more and more dependent uh, and focused on our digital devices, the less likely we are to engage with real people in real situations. And sadly, sadly, I think that's where a lot of the rise in anxiety, depression, especially in our young people, because not only are they interacting less by a significant number, the, the number of young people who hang out, just hang out with friends more than once or twice a week has gone way down. And so the less they do that, the less likely they are to, de- to build the skills and competencies required to interact with real human beings in a wide range of situations. And so we're, we're really setting up that next generation for failure by not putting them in situations where they're going to learn real skills to deal with real human beings. And I get it. Sometimes it's easier at the end of a day to just go hole up and hide out, hunker down. Uh, but that's not what we were actually built for. Uh, and sometimes we can joke and say, you know, this would all be really easy if it weren't for people. And I think that's true. I think we could say that in the context of business in politics, in community, sometimes even in family. Family should be really easy if it weren't for the people. Uh, But it's about the people, uh, and it's about that uh, connection that we all crave. A really interesting uh, Harvard study uh, pointed out that loneliness, social isolation, or both, were associated with 29% increased rise in heart attack, 32% greater risk of stroke, Uh, In other words, the risk was similar to that of smoking or obesity, uh, according to those Harvard researchers, that loneliness and isolation can have every bit as detrimental impact on your health as a heart attack or a stroke or smoking or obesity, uh, because we're human beings for a reason. And being able to have that connection, especially in community, I think is something we have to get back to Uh, both for the health of our communities, but also for the health of the next generation, because they've got to develop those skills, because without that interconnectedness, taking it full circle all the way back to Tocqueville, uh, that it is that free association that is uniquely American and allows us to do the most extraordinary things. The attention, that intellectual and moral associations in America are what make the country really unique. Get deeper insights on the news from Inside Sources. Welcome back to Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. It's great to be with you today. As always, I am Boyd Matheson. As we round out the program, I, I want to extend our conversation from the last segment, uh, talking about the interconnectedness and some of the things that make that really matter. Uh, it's so interesting to me as I continue to study where the American people really are. Uh, not where those inside the Washington, D.C. bubble think we are, but where we actually are. And as you look out across the country, the country is clearly a center-left to center-right nation. And the vast majority of the American people fall somewhere in that space. Uh, the very far left and the very far right are very loud, very prominent, very prevalent in our day-to-day noise machine. Uh, but they aren't real. Uh, and sadly, because of that, it does seem a little hopeless in terms of making any kind of change. And so you have this movable middle, this vast majority, center left to center right, who've disconnected from the political process. 
And they're doing that partially because they're exhausted and exasperated by it. They're doing it in part because they're living their lives. They're working at their jobs. They're raising their families. They're helping their neighbors. They're making a difference in their community. And so they don't have time for the nonsense that we have come to accept as political discussion, policy discussion in the country. And one of the most fascinating pieces of information for me, of those who have disconnected from the politics and the civic engagement, you're not going to get them back involved by a particular issue. They're not going to get back involved because of border security or health care. The things that will get them to re-engage are when you talk about community, when you talk about compassion, when you talk about responsibility, personal responsibility, and opportunity or upward mobility. And I want to zero in on this idea of responsibility, that we don't talk nearly enough about that, and it's such a core linchpin to a successful society, especially American society. And to get at that, I actually want to go to something my wife pointed out to me the other day, uh, a quote from Margaret Thatcher. So we're going to talk about American personal responsibility by way of the former prime minister of the UK, Margaret Thatcher, who talked about personal responsibility during an interview in a way that I think is really instructive for us today. You know, when the state does everything for you, it'll soon take everything from you. You will then have no basis for personal freedom, political freedom, nor economic freedom. I said in my speech today, the state must never substitute for personal responsibility. I know that we'll only get the kind of country, the kind of prosperity, uh, the kind of standards which I wish to see if everyone says, it's my job to do my best. It's my job to try to lend a hand to others and not to say, oh, I'm not going to do that, that's for the state. What sort of society do you think we'd have if you said, have people saying that? It's the state's job to find a job. It's the state's job to house me. It's the state's job to look after my family. What, what Once you go, freedom is inseparable from personal responsibility. You know, there's a famous quote from George Bernard Shaw, if I can remember it. Freedom incurs responsibility. That's why many men fear it. Freedom and responsibility, they do go hand in hand. And it's that, again, interconnected responsibility we have for each other. That's also part of it. I loved how uh, Margaret Thatcher talked about that. If we're always looking to government to solve everything, if it's the government's job to provide for your family, if it's the government's job to take care of your neighbor, if it's the government's job uh, to take care of all of these things, then freedom is not likely to last very long. Because a government that can do all of those things is the government that can take away all of those things. Uh, but it's become so easy in our society uh, to, to just do that, to abdicate personal responsibility and point to the government. Uh, there's a, a lot of uh, shoulder shrugging going on in the country these days. Not a whole lot of shoulder squaring, especially when it comes to our elected officials. Because it is so easy, regardless of where you are, to point fingers, place blame, and say, that's not my job. That's not my responsibility. Or even just to think to ourselves, oh, someone else will take care of that. Uh, I have shared in the past uh, the, the classic old story uh, that I think is the epitome uh, and the antithesis of responsibility and how we should actually approach it. 
and we frame it in the context of a story about four American citizens named everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. And so here's how the story goes. There once was a time when the country needed the citizens to solve a critical problem that threatened the freedom of the nation. Well, everybody was sure somebody would do it. And while anybody could have done it, nobody did it. Somebody got angry because really it was everybody's responsibility. Yet everybody thought somebody would do it, but nobody asked anybody. So everybody thought a community meeting would help. Sounds logical. Somebody couldn't make it and suggested that anybody could come up with a plan to solve the problem anyway. So a few weeks later, when everybody checked in, nobody had done anything with anybody, so somebody recommended they have another meeting. Well, when the problem became a true crisis, somebody blamed anybody and everybody for the problem. Nobody got serious about a solution to the problem that anybody could have come up with. So while anybody could have done it, somebody would have done it, everybody should have done it, but in the end, nobody did it, and freedom was lost. And that's the problem when we abdicate personal responsibility. We all have a role to play. And when we abdicate that, when we shrug our shoulders, when we say, no, that's the state will handle that. Big government will take care of that. Somebody else will deal with the issue. Uh, that's when we get into problem. That's when freedom is in its most precarious spot. And so it is about personal responsibility. It, it is about living with each other in a different kind of way. When we each lean into our personal responsibility, it actually builds trust. Uh, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs said that all social institutions in a free society depend on trust. And trust means being responsible, honoring our promises, doing what we say we'll do. When that breaks down, the very future of freedom is actually at risk. And so we do have to have that kind of responsibility. If we want to have trust in society, that's the test. If trust breaks down, social relationships break down. Society then depends on law enforcement agencies or some other government entity to use force. And then there's this vicious cycle. When force is widely used, society is no longer free. The only way free human beings can form a collaborative, cooperative relationship is to build trust and to be personally responsible and collectively responsible. That's how community actually happens. All right, that wraps it up for us on Inside Sources today here on KSL News Radio. I am Boyd Matheson. Thanks for joining us today. And as always, as you go out into the world today, make sure you see something that inspires, say something that uplifts, and do something that makes a difference. KSL FM Midvale. KSL Salt Lake City. From the KSL Common Spirit Health Studios. This is KSL News Radio. Utah's news, traffic, and weather station.